The Woman of the Satyr by Jerome K. Jerome This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rafe Ball The Woman of the Satyr by Jerome K. Jerome Wild reindeer stalking is hardly so exciting a sport as the evening's veranda talk in Norway hotels would lead the trustful traveller to suppose. Under the charge of your guide, a very young man with the dreamy, wistful eyes of those who live in valleys, you leave the farmstead early in the forenoon, arriving towards twilight at the desolate hut which, for so long as you remain upon the uplands, will be your somewhat cheerless headquarters. Next morning, in the chill, mist-laden dawn, you rise, and, after a breakfast of coffee and dried fish, shoulder your Remington and step forth silently into the raw, damp air, the guide locking the door behind you, the key grating harshly in the rusty lock. For hour after hour you toil over the steep, stony ground, or wind through the pines, speaking in whispers, lest your voice reach the quick ears of your prey that keeps its head ever pressed against the wind. Here and there, in the hollows of the hills, lie wide fields of snow, over which you pick your steps thoughtfully, listening to the smothered thunder of the torrent tunnelling its way beneath your feet, and wondering whether the frozen arch above it be at all points as firm as is desirable. Now and again, as in single file you walk cautiously along some jagged ridge, you catch glimpses of the green world three thousand feet below you, though you gaze not long upon the view, for your attention is chiefly directed to watching the footprints of the guide, lest by deviating to the right or left you find yourself at one stride back in the valley, or, to be more correct, are found there. These things you do, and, as exercise, they are healthful and invigorating. But a reindeer you never see, and unless, overcoming the prejudices of your British-bred conscience, you care to take an occasional pop at a fox, you had better have left your rifle at the hut, and, instead, have brought a stick which would have been helpful, notwithstanding which the guide continues sanguine, and in broken English, helped out by stirring gesture, tells of the terrible slaughter generally done by sportsmen under his superintendence, and of the vast herds that generally infest these fields, and when you grow sceptical upon the subject of rains, he whispers alluringly of bears. Once in a way you will come across a track, and will follow it breathlessly for hours, and it will lead to a sheer precipice. Whether the explanation is suicide, or a reprehensible tendency on the part of the animal towards practical joking, you are left to decide for yourself. Then, with many rough miles between you and your rest, you abandon the chase. But I speak from personal experience merely. All day long we had tramped through the pitiless rain, stopping only for an hour at noon to eat some dried venison and smoke a pipe beneath the shelter of an overhanging cliff. Soon afterwards Michael knocked over a riper, a bird that will hardly take the trouble to hop out of your way, with his gun barrel, which incident cheered us a little, and, later on, 
our flagging spirits were still further revived by the discovery of apparently very recent deer tracks. These we followed, forgetful, in our eagerness, of the lengthening distance back to the hut, of the fading daylight, of the gathering mist. The track led us higher and higher, farther and farther into the mountains, until on the shores of a desolate rock-bound vand it abruptly ended and we stood staring at one another, and the snow began to fall. Unless in the next half-hour we could chance upon a satyr, this meant passing the night upon the mountain. Michael and I looked at the guide, but though, with characteristic Norwegian sturdiness, he put a bold face upon it, we could see that in that deepening darkness he knew no more than we did. Wasting no time on words, we made straight for the nearest point of descent, knowing that any human habitation must be far below us. Down we scrambled, heedless of torn clothes and bleeding hands, the darkness pressing closer round us. Then, suddenly, it became black, black as pitch, and we could only hear each other. Another step might mean death. We stretched out our hands and felt each other. Why we spoke in whispers, I do not know, but we seemed afraid of our own voices. We agreed there was nothing for it but to stop where we were till morning, clinging to the short grass. So we lay there, side by side, for what may have been five minutes, or may have been an hour. Then, attempting to turn, I lost my grip and rolled. I made convulsive efforts to clutch the ground, but the incline was too steep. How far I fell, I could not say, but at last something stopped me. I felt it cautiously with my foot. It did not yield, so I twisted myself round and touched it with my hand. It seemed planted firmly in the earth. I passed my arm along to the right, then to the left. I shouted with joy. It was a fence. Rising and groping about me, I found an opening and passed through, and crept forward with palms outstretched until I touched the logs of a hut, then, feeling my way round, discovered the door and knocked. There came no response, so I knocked louder, then pushed, and the heavy woodwork yielded, groaning. But the darkness within was even darker than the darkness without. The others had contrived to crawl down and join me. Michael struck a wax vesta and held it up, and slowly the room came out of the darkness and stood round us. Then something rather startling happened. Giving one swift glance about him, our guide uttered a cry and rushed out into the night. We followed to the door and called after him. But only a voice came to us out of the blackness, and the only words we could catch, shrieked back in terror, were, Sater Fronen! Sater Fronen! The women of the Sater. Some foolish superstition about the place, I suppose, said Michael. In these mountain solitudes, men breed ghosts for company. Let us make a fire. Perhaps, when he sees the light, his desire for food and shelter may get the better of his fears. We felt about the small enclosure round the house, and gathered juniper and birch twigs, and kindled a fire upon the open stove built in the corner of the room. Fortunately, we had some dried reindeer and bread in our bag, and on that and the riper and the contents of our flasks we supped. Afterwards, to while away the time, we made an inspection of the strange eyrie we had lighted on. 
It was an old, log-built satyr. Some of these mountain farmsteads are as old as the stone ruins of other countries. Carvings of strange beasts and demons were upon its blackened rafters, and on the lintel, in runic letters, ran this legend. Hunt builded me in the days of Harfaga. The house consisted of two large apartments. Originally, no doubt, these had been separate dwellings, standing beside one another, but they were now connected by a long, low gallery. Most of the scanty furniture was almost as ancient as the walls themselves, but many articles of a comparatively recent date had been added. All was now, however, rotting and falling into decay. The place appeared to have been deserted suddenly by its last occupants. Household utensils lay as they were left, rust and dirt encrusted on them. An open book, limp and mildewed, lay face downwards on the table, while many others were scattered about both rooms, together with much paper, scored with faded ink. The curtains hung in shreds about the windows. A woman's cloak, of an antiquated fashion, drooped from a nail behind the door. In an oak chest we found a tumbled heap of yellow letters. They were of various dates, extending over a period of four months, and with them, apparently intended to receive them, lay a large envelope, inscribed with an address in London that has since disappeared. Strong curiosity overcoming faint scruples, we read them by the dull glow of the burning juniper twigs, and, as we lay aside the last of them, there rose from the depths below us a wailing cry, and all night long it rose and died away, and rose again and died away again, whether born of our brain or of some human thing, God knows. And these, a little altered and shortened, are the letters. Extract from First Letter I cannot tell you, my dear Joyce, what a haven of peace this place is to me after the racket and fret of town. I am almost quite recovered already, and am growing stronger every day. And, joy of joys, my brain has come back to me, fresher and more vigorous, I think, for its holiday. In this silence and solitude my thoughts flow freely, and the difficulties of my task are disappearing as if by magic. We are perched upon a tiny plateau halfway up the mountain. On one side the rock rises almost perpendicularly, piercing the sky, while on the other, two thousand feet below us, the torrent hurls itself into the black waters of the fjord. The house consists of two rooms, or rather it is two cabins connected by a passage. The larger one we use as a living room, and the other is our sleeping apartment. We have no servant, but do everything for ourselves. I fear sometimes Muriel must find it lonely. The nearest human habitation is eight miles away, across the mountain, and not a soul comes near us. I spend as much time as I can with her, however, during the day, and make up for it by working at night after she has gone to sleep. And when I question her, she only laughs, and answers that she loves to have me all to herself. Here you will smile cynically, I know, and say, <laughs> I wonder will she say the same when they have been married six years instead of six months. At the rate I am working now, I shall have finished my first volume by the spring, 
and then, my dear fellow, you must try and come over, and we will walk and talk together amid these storm-reared temples of the gods. I have felt a new man since I arrived here. Instead of having to cudgel my brains, as we say, thoughts crowd upon me. This work will make my name. Part of the third letter, the second being mere talk about the book, a history apparently, that the man was writing. My dear Joyce, I have written you two letters, this will make the third, but have been unable to post them. Every day I have been expecting a visit from some farmer or villager, for the Norwegians are kindly people towards strangers, to say nothing of the inducements of trade. A fortnight having passed, however, and the commissariat question having become serious, I yesterday set out before dawn, and made my way down to the valley, and this gives me something to tell you. Nearing the village I met a peasant woman. To my intense surprise, instead of returning my salutation, she stared at me, as if I were some wild animal, and shrank away from me as far as the width of the road would permit. In the village the same experience awaited me. The children ran from me. The people avoided me. At last a grey-haired old man appeared to take pity on me, and from him I learnt the explanation of the mystery. It seems there is a strange superstition attaching to this house in which we are living. My things were brought up here by the two men who accompanied me from Drontheim, but the natives are afraid to go near the place, and prefer to keep as far as possible from any one connected with it. The story is that the house was built by one Hund, a maker of runes, one of the old saga writers, no doubt, who lived here with his young wife. All went peacefully until, unfortunately for him, a certain maiden stationed at a neighbouring satyr grew to love him. Forgive me if I am telling you what you know, but a satyr is the name given to the upland pastures to which, during the summer, are sent the cattle, generally under the charge of one or more of the maids. Here, for three months, these girls live in their lonely huts, entirely shut off from the world. Customs change a little in this land. Two or three such stations are within climbing distance of this house, at this day looked after by the farmer's daughters, as in the days of Hund, maker of runes. Every night, by devious mountain paths, the woman would come and tap lightly at Hund's door. Hund had built himself two cabins, one behind the other. These are now, as I think I have explained to you, connected by a passage. The smaller one was the homestead. In the other he carved and wrote, so that while the young wife slept, the maker of runes and the satyr woman sat whispering. One night, however, the wife learnt all things, but said no word. Then, as now, the ravine in front of the enclosure was crossed by a slight bridge of planks, and over this bridge the woman of the satyr passed and repassed each night. On a day when Hunt had gone down to fish in the fjord, the wife took an axe and hacked and hewed at the bridge, yet it still looked firm and solid. And that night, as Hunt sat waiting in his workshop, there struck upon his ears a piercing cry, and a crashing of logs and rolling rock, and then again the dull roaring of the torrent far below. But the woman did not die unavenged. 
for that winter a man skating far down the fjord noticed a curious object embedded in the ice and when stooping he looked closer he saw two corpses one gripping the other by the throat and the bodies were the bodies of hund and his young wife since then they say the woman of the satyr haunts hund's house and if she sees a light within she taps upon the door and no man may keep her out many at different times have tried to occupy the house but strange tales are told of them men do not live at hund's satyr said my old grey-haired friend concluding his tale they die there i have persuaded some of the braver of the villagers to bring what provisions and other necessaries we require up to a plateau about a mile from the house and leave them there that is the most i have been able to do it comes somewhat as a shock to one to find men and women fairly educated and intelligent as many of them are slaves to fears that one would expect a child to laugh at but there is no reasoning with superstition extract from the same letter but from a part seemingly written a day or two later at home i should have forgotten such a tale an hour after i heard it but these mountain fastnesses seem strangely fit to be the last stronghold of the supernatural the woman haunts me already at night instead of working i find myself listening for her tapping at the door and yesterday an incident occurred that makes me fear for my own common sense i had gone out for a long walk alone and the twilight was thickening into darkness as i neared home suddenly looking up from my reverie i saw standing on a knoll the other side of the ravine the figure of a woman she held a cloak about her head and i could not see her face i took off my cap and called out a good night to her but she never moved or spoke then god knows why for my brain was full of other thoughts at the time a clammy chill crept over me and my tongue grew dry and parched i stood rooted to the spot staring at her across the yawning gorge that divided us and slowly she moved away and passed into the gloom and i continued my way i have said nothing to muriel and shall not the effect the story has had upon myself warns me not to do so from a letter dated eleven days later she has come i have known she would since that evening i saw her on the mountain and last night she came and we have sat and looked into each other's eyes you will say of course that i am mad that i have not recovered from my fever that i have been working too hard that i have heard a foolish tale and that it has filled my overstrung brain with foolish fancies i have told myself all that but the thing came nevertheless a creature of flesh and blood a creature of air a creature of my own imagination what matter it was real to me it came last night as i sat working alone each night i have waited for it listened for it longed for it i know now i heard the passing of its feet upon the bridge the tapping of its hand upon the door three times tap 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 i 
felt my loins grow cold and a pricking pain about my head and i gripped my chair with both hands and waited and again there came the tapping tap 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 i rose and slipped the bolt of the door leading to the other room and again i waited and again there came the tapping tap 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 then i opened the heavy outer door and the wind rushed past me scattering my papers and the woman entered in and i closed the door behind her she threw her hood back from her head and unwound a kerchief from about her neck and laid it on the table then she crossed and sat before the fire and i noticed her bare feet were damp with the night dew i stood over against her and gazed at her and she smiled at me a strange wicked smile but i could have laid my soul at her feet she never spoke or moved and neither did i feel the need of spoken words for i understood the meaning of those upon the mount when they said let us here make tabernacles it is good for us to be here how long a time passed thus i do not know but suddenly the woman held her hand up listening and there came a faint sound from the other room then swiftly she drew her hood about her face and passed out closing the door softly behind her and i drew back the bolt of the inner door and waited and hearing nothing more sat down and must have fallen asleep in my chair i awoke and instantly there flashed through my mind the thought of the kerchief the woman had left behind her and i started from my chair to hide it but the table was already laid for breakfast and my wife sat with her elbows on the table and her head between her hands watching me with a look in her eyes that was new to me she kissed me though her lips were cold and i argued to myself that the whole thing must have been a dream but later in the day passing the open door when her back was towards me i saw her take the kerchief from a locked chest and look at it i have told myself it must have been a kerchief of her own and that all the rest has been my imagination that if not then my strange visitant was no spirit but a woman and that if human thing knows human thing it was no creature of flesh and blood that sat beside me last night besides what woman would she be the nearest satyr is a three hours climb to a strong man and the paths are dangerous even in daylight what woman would have found them in the night what woman would have chilled the air around her and have made the blood flow cold through all my veins yet if she come again i will speak to her i will stretch out my hand and see whether she be mortal thing or only air the fifth letter my dear joyce whether your eyes will ever see these letters is doubtful from this place i shall never send them they would read to you as the ravings of a madman if ever i return to england i may one day show them to you but when i do it will be when i with you can laugh over them at present i write them merely to hide away putting the words down on paper saves my screaming them aloud she comes each night now taking the same seat beside the embers and fixing upon me those eyes with the hell light in them that burn into my brain 
and at rare times she smiles and all my being passes out of me and is hers i make no attempt to work i sit listening for her footsteps on the creaking bridge for the rustling of her feet upon the grass for the tapping of her hand upon the door no word is uttered between us each day i say when she comes to-night i will speak to her i will stretch out my hand and touch her yet when she enters all thought and will goes out from me last night as i stood gazing at her my soul filled with her wondrous beauty as a lake with moonlight her lips parted and she started from her chair and turning i thought i saw a white face pressed against the window but as i looked it vanished then she drew her cloak about her and passed out i slid back the bolt i always draw now and stole into the other room and taking down the lantern held it above the bed but muriel's eyes were closed as if in sleep extract from the sixth letter it is not the night i fear but the day i hate the sight of this woman with whom i live whom i call wife i shrink from the blow of her cold lips the curse of her stony eyes she has seen she has learnt i feel it i know it yet she winds her arms around my neck and calls me sweetheart and smooths my hair with her soft false hands we speak mocking words of love to one another but i know her cruel eyes are ever following me she is plotting her revenge and i hate her i hate her i hate her part of the seventh letter this morning i went down to the fjord i told her i should not be back until the evening she stood by the door watching me until we were mere specks to one another and a promontory of the mountain shut me from view then turning aside from the track i made my way running and stumbling over the jagged ground round to the other side of the mountain and began to climb again it was slow weary work often i had to go miles out of my road to avoid a ravine and twice i reached a high point only to have to descend again but at length i crossed the ridge and crept down to a spot where concealed i could spy upon my own house she my wife stood by the flimsy bridge a short hatchet such as butchers use was in her hand she leant against a pine trunk with her arm behind her as one stands whose back aches with long stooping in some cramped position and even at that distance i could see the cruel smile about her lips then i recrossed the ridge and crawled down again and waiting until evening walked slowly up the path as i came in view of the house she saw me and waved her handkerchief to me and in answer i waved my hat and shouted curses at her that the wind whirled away into the torrent she met me with a kiss and i breathed no hint to her that i had seen let her devil's work remain undisturbed let it prove to me what manner of thing this is that haunts me if it be a spirit then the bridge wilt bear it safely if it be woman but i dismiss the thought if it be human thing why does it sit gazing at me never speaking why does my tongue refuse to question it why does all power forsake me in its presence so that i stand as in a dream 
yet if it be spirit why do i hear the passing of her feet and why does the night rain glisten on her hair i force myself back into my chair it is far into the night and i am alone waiting listening if it be spirit she will come to me and if it be woman i shall hear her cry above the storm unless it be a demon mocking me i have heard the cry it rose piercing and shrill above the storm above the writhing and rending of the bridge above the downward crashing of the logs and loosened stones i hear it as i listen now it is cleaving its way upward from the depths below it is wailing through the room as i sit writing i have crawled upon my belly to the utmost edge of the still standing pier until i could feel with my hand the jagged splinters left by the fallen planks and have looked down but the chasm was full to the brim with darkness i shouted but the wind shook my voice into mocking laughter i sit here feebly striking at the madness that is creeping nearer and nearer to me i tell myself the whole thing is but the fever in my brain the bridge was rotten the storm was strong the cry is but a single one among the many voices of the mountain yet still i listen and it rises clear and shrill above the moaning of the pines above the sobbing of the waters it beats like blows upon my skull and i know that she will never come again extract from the last letter i shall address an envelope to you and leave it among these letters then should i never come back some chance wanderer may one day find and post them to you and you will know my books and writings remain untouched we sit together of a night this woman i call wife and i she holding in her hands some knitted thing that never grows longer by a single stitch and i with a volume before me that is ever open at the same page and day and night we watch each other stealthily moving to and fro about the silent house and at times looking round swiftly i catch the smile upon her lips before she has time to smooth it away we speak like strangers about this and that, making talk to hide our thoughts. We make a pretense of busying ourselves about whatever will help us to keep apart from one another. At night, sitting here between the shadows and the dull glow of the smouldering twigs, I sometimes think I hear the tapping I have learnt to listen for, and I start from my seat, softly open the door, and look out. But only the night stands there. Then I close to the latch, and she, the living woman, asks me in her purring voice what sound I heard, hiding a smile as she stoops low over her work. And I answer lightly, and, moving towards her, put my arm about her, feeling her softness and her suppleness, and wondering, supposing I held her close to me with one arm while pressing her from me with the other, how long? before i should hear the cracking of her bones for here amid these savage solitudes i also am grown savage the old primeval passions of love and hate stir within me and they are fierce and cruel and strong beyond what you men of the later ages could understand 
the culture of the centuries has fallen from me as a flimsy garment whirled away by the mountain wind the old savage instincts of the race lie bare one day i shall twine my fingers about her full white throat and her eyes will slowly come towards me and her lips will part and the red tongue creep out and backwards step by step i shall push her before me gazing the while upon her bloodless face and it will be my turn to smile backwards through the open door backwards along the garden path between the juniper bushes backwards till her heels are overhanging the ravine and she grips life with nothing but her little toes i shall force her step by step before me then i shall lean forward closer closer till i kiss her purpling lips and down 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 past the startled seabirds past the white spray of the foss past the downward peeping pines down 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 we will go together till we find the thing that lies sleeping beneath the waters of the fjord with these words ended the last letter unsigned at the first streak of dawn we left the house and after much wandering found our way back to the valley but of our guide we heard no news whether he remained still upon the mountain or whether by some false step he had perished upon that night we never learned End of The Woman of the Satyr Recording by Rafe Ball